0: Hey everyone, friend of the podcast, Carl Bonner is a mixing engineer who helps other producers and mixers find, attract, and build better relationships with clients who are making the kind of music you are most passionate about. Uh, he recently began developing a course based on how he trains the Spotify algorithm to make super accurate recommendations for you to find potential artists to work with. And he's giving it all away for free while it's still a work in progress. So go to carlbonner.com coaching to learn more and I'll have a link for that in the show notes. So go check it out. Hey everyone, welcome back to Secret Sonics. This is episode 129 with Steve Ornest. I had a great chat with Steve. We talked about so many things, including getting started young, meeting famed producer Wynn Davis, forming a relationship with him, and eventually partnering up as a co-owner of Total Access Recording with him. Uh, We talked about tapping into local talent, being a connector and not just a producer. We talked about working with Mixerman and Ken Scott, meeting with artists in person and not just over the phone. We talked about outsourcing, being a conduit for the artists you work with, being a workaholic and being present, taking breaks. Uh, We talked about his new rehearsal space, Total Access Rehearsals, uh, zooming out and appreciating the journey, and so much more. So tons of great stuff here. We really covered a lot of ground. I think you're going to love this conversation. So with all that to say, here's my conversation with Steve Ernest here on Secret Sonics. (laughs) Secret Sonics You're listening to Secret Sonics, a podcast exploring the creative side of music production. Join us weekly for honest conversations with real-world music producers and audio professionals. Hello, and welcome back to Secret Sonics. I'm your host, Ben Wallach. My guest today is Steve Ornest. Steve is a music producer, engineer, and multi-instrumentalist, and the co-owner of Total Access Recording and Total Access Rehearsals in Redondo Beach, California. I recently heard Steve on a podcast episode of The Six Figure Creative, and I really enjoyed what he had to say, so I invited him on the air uh, onto my podcast, and he's graciously agreed to do so. So with all that to say, welcome to Secret Sonics, Steve. Thanks so much for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you kind of told your story on the six-figure creative and how it was kind of like a rom-com, uh, <laughs> <laughs> cheesy rom-coms, yeah, exactly. a cheesy rom-com <laughs> upcoming. But I'd love for you to tell it on, on on my podcast as well. You know, you don't, you know, you can say it as briefly as you want to say it, but yeah,
1: it's a cool story. Thanks, man. Yeah. So I grew up always. I basically grew up fascinated by music from an early age. I mean, I remember like my earliest childhood memory was when I was like two or three years old finding my mom's vinyl collection and like learning how to put the records on and actually play them myself. And, you know, listening to everything that was popular in the late 80s, early 90s, like Michael Jackson and Madonna and just all that stuff and and, and classic rock stuff like the Rolling Stones and Beatles and just being like infatuated. And that's all I wanted to do was listen to music and soon started playing piano. And then years later, switched to guitar The rom-com part of this is that by the time I got to high school, I was already playing with a lot of, you know, a lot of bands, even as like a 13, 14 year old, I was going out and I was like in some cover band at the time that was like an eighties rock cover band with guys that were like in their (laughs) forties and, uh, Anyway, I used to go to school, like, you know, I looked like the guitar player kid. I had long hair and, you know, it just looked ridiculous. I looked like a cartoon character of, like, what someone thought Slash might have looked like when he was, you know, 14 with (laughs) the hair and, like, the leather pants and, like, the whole nine yards. Like, it was, you know, it was pretty awesome. Like, my wife tells me now if she would have met me then, this never would have happened. (laughs) So, it was special. Um, But anyway, I would, you know, like, cut class and just, like, sit on the bleachers and play guitar. And... One of the days that I was doing that, I had like this little mini Marshall with me, you know, so I could hear myself while I was playing. This girl came up to me and said, hey, you sound really good. You should meet my dad. And I said, oh, who is he? And she said his name, Wynn Davis. So I went home and like looked up who he was and saw that he had worked with like Dio and Guns N' Roses and all of these bands that I, I loved at the time. So I went back to school and was like, yes, please introduce me you know, to your dad. So she brought him to a local show that I was playing at. And long story short, he gave me his card. I went to the studio. I met him for the first time, saw the studio, was super overwhelmed by just everything. He was, I think he was mixing like a Black Label Society DVD. So it was like Zach Wild. Wy- I could hear Zach Wild coming through the speakers. And for a 14 year old, I was like, oh my God, this is yeah, crazy.
0: Especially like back then, before we had access to everything on the internet. Exactly, I feel like. yeah. Sure, the internet existed, but it wasn't the same place, right? Like oh, if yeah. I heard Zach Wilde's guitar when I was 14, I'd go wild, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice pun too, man. <laughs> yeah. could I had to do it, right? Yeah, it was, like, it was, it was un- unstoppable. Right. And so, yeah,
1: so when started, he sort of took me under his wing and would call me when he needed someone to play on on things. And I got to play on some pretty cool records, even as like a young guy. And, and then, you know, one of the times, so my mom, of course, because I, I was still a pup, I was like 14, was dropping me off to the studio and picking me up later. And one of those times, she went in and met Win, and the you know that story is the two of them wound up falling in love and getting married, and there's your cheesy rom-com, <laughs> which is crazy onto itself. But in any event, you know. <laughs> You fast forward and I wound up going to Berkeley and Boston for a couple of years and sort of finding out that, you know, just to rewind actually for a second, even in high school when I was playing guitar for all these bands, I would show up to like kids houses with my little like eight track digital recorder and I would charge them like 50 bucks and just spend like a day recording. I had little idea what I was doing, but I was just using my ears to record songs and get them to make me feel excited. and. Started getting quite good at it and then you know when at one point I think when I was like 15 called me and said hey some local Japanese songwriter is working on these song demos and they're a little bit wacky but this might be a good opportunity for you just to like really cut your teeth you know um, as a guitar player because at the time if you would have told me like as a recording engineer I'd be like you're crazy I don't want to do that you know. So, I started working with her and I upgraded my system. So, I had a little Pro Tools rig, like a little dub, Digi 002, and started having singers come over to the house and recording them and, and got really comfortable with Pro Tools. Going, you know, fast forwarding again, by the time I went to Berkeley, and everyone's like the hero in their zip code on their instrument, everyone's so talented started finding that the thing that like really set me apart was the fact that I could turn things in that sounded like they were fully produced. And I just recorded them like in my little attic apartment that I was living in because I had, <laughs> had years of experience doing it. And I knew how to record guitar and I knew how to record a vocal. And
0: were you there the same t- around the same time as Fernando Ladero? Cause I feel like he's also your
1: age and was at Berkeley. I don't know if you know him. I don't, I don't know him personally, but it's, it's possible. It's crazy how many people I run into now in L.A. that are like, you went to Berkeley what year? And I'll tell them, and they're like, man, I was there the same time. And I'm like, oh, wow, oh my that's gosh. crazy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amazing.
0: Also, also Travis uh, Ferens comes to mind, who also has a great podcast, Progressions. I don't know if you know Oh, him. cool. I, no, I, I don't.
1: I'll have to check that out. All right. Well, I'll have to introduce you guys. Yeah, man. <laughs> so I wound up coming back to um, you know to California, and I put a band together and started recording some of the stuff at the studio, and, and I was still playing for other artists as well, but pretty quickly like my focus became way more on like being in the studio arranging writing working with other artists working and at first you know super fearful cuz it was terrifying being you know in that environment where you're responsible for someone else's like you know their vision and and just being a part of that and and especially in a, in a place like Total Access which is different from being like in an attic recording studio you know but but starting around like 2021, 20, you know, 20 or 21 years old, I started um seriously like working as like a producer and recording engineer and taking it seriously and and then it sort of took over everything and fast forward and now I I run the studio. <laughs> so it's been a crazy journey.
0: Wow. So, so tell me a little bit about that transition from, you know, just being a producer to kind of being a co-owner of Total Access with Win. What did that look like?
1: Yeah, so I think that there was a conversation we had probably about 10 years ago when I was in my like mid twenties where we went out, I actually remember it was like my birthday and we went out for dinner and, and he was like, you know, Steve sort of want to talk to you about something like there's going to be a point where I'm not going to want to be in this room anymore. You know, it's been like 30 something years that he had at that point already been doing this, you know, and, and he had opened the studio in 81 and, you know, he's like, I, I'm still going to be involved for a while as long as far as I know, but. I just, you know, I'm just sort of curious, like what you think. And it sort of was like a rude awakening for me, because I think for those four or five years up to that point, I was like, I'd say that I was still 50% in this at that point, 50% in the studio and 50% like, gigging with artists and, you know, doing all sorts of other things to make it make sense. Sure. And then like pretty much after that conversation, something just clicked in my head where I was like, I can do this. Like, I, I know that this is, this is in a sense, like something I'd been training for in my whole life. I just never really stopped and realized it, (laughs) you know, that this might actually be like the right path for me to go down. And I think I, I realized that the most important thing for me to do, because we still had at that point, a lot of like legacy artists that had been coming to win for years that I started working with with him. But like really what was gonna help me sort of make my name and sort of launch the studio into the future was by trying to reinvigorate like a local music scene. Because we're not actually in LA, we're not in Hollywood. We're like 35 miles South in Redondo Beach, which is just a small like beach community. This is still North of like Orange County, right? It is, yeah, exactly. Like- Okay. Huntington Beach is technically, I believe Seal Beach maybe is like where that the cutoff is. And that's like twelve or fifteen miles south of us. So we're still LA County. But it's it's far from, you know, like if you're in the valley or something and you're used to recording at any one of the mm. studios in Hollywood, it's it's a bit of a commitment getting down here, you know, and plenty of people do. But with all that said, there's so much talent here in the beach cities, like Redondo Beach, Hermosa, Torrance, Long Beach, like there's just so much music. Mm. And there have been periods of time in the last 25 years where it was really celebrated, like the punk scene and a lot of the artists we worked with, like Pennywise and and then Sublime and, you know, a lot of like the Long Beach scene and all that. But it's like, you know, like any sort of trend like that, when that fizzles a little bit, then people sort of forget that that area was like really cool at a time. And there's so many young, talented people around here. So... I've been really tapping into that for like the last eight or 10 years and trying to help sort of recreate something down here. I love that. I, I
0: feel like these days, you know, for me personally, I'm trying to like expand my, you know, clientele uh, of working with artists, you know, abroad, not just in my, because my local scene is very small, right? I'm in Jerusalem, which is, a, you know, not even the biggest city in, in, in Israel in sure. terms of like a music scene. And, you know, if I'm only working for local stuff, I'm not only doing music. I'm also doing podcast work. I'm also doing, you know, random recordings, random stuff. Right. So in order for me to kind of do more music, I need to look out. And I, I know a lot of people are doing that these days. So it's really badass that you're kind of able to kind of foster the local turf and, you know, get something from that. Yeah. The, you know, there's actually an interesting book. Uh, I don't know if you read this, but David Byrne has a book. I think it's called How Music Works. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Have you, I read have you, Yeah. Oh yeah! Awesome. Okay. Cool. So he has like a whole chapter of like how to
1: make a scene. Do you remember that? I, man, I don't. I just I just remember reading that, but I, and I know that I still have it at the studio. But yeah, I, I'll have to go back and check it out.
0: It sounds like a, maybe worth uh, revisiting. It yeah, was, totally, man. I remember reading that and being like, "Man, I don't think my my city could possibly do this. This is so cool." It's like talking about like like CBGBs in like, uh, you know, the 80s and how like New York was able to be foster like the talking heads, right. you know? Yeah, totally. And like, you know, having a club where any artist that's blooming could play without like much in the way. And also people are hanging out and watching it and observing it and like creating like a, a local sound almost. I don't know. I thought it was like a really cool chapter.
1: Yeah. And, and I don't know. I feel like some of that No city is just all of a sudden set up with that. Like there are, I mean, and there are definitely places in LA right now that have much more of that than the South Bay. I mean, it'd be easier in a sense if I was in like Highland Park or Echo Park or Silver Lake where everything is just be, it's super gentrified and there's, coffee shops everywhere and all these little small venues popping up and like coffee shops with record like record players. And like, it's just, that's the vibe that's going on. But in some ways, because that's like so cool and so hip, I feel like there's an oversaturation of everything. I mean, it's just like, there's so much music happening there that that might be a bit overwhelming. And for me, I sort of found that because there is so much talent down here, even though there's some elements that we're missing, like a great venue, which we finally have again, Because we had a local venue for years called St. Rock and it closed during the pandemic. But I have a relationship with someone who um, just opened or has been at a venue that's in San Pedro and it now has like a state-of-the-art sound system. And she's really making a go of like having something locally that's going to be important for, you know, cultivating this, this scene. So there's a few of us that are like really pushing for this. It's not definitely not just me.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, have you had any, I don't know, do you have any like takeaways from like trying to build up a scene of like what works, how to, how to foster
1: it? Yeah. I, I think the most important thing, I mean, first of all, of course, is just like getting started and trying to hone in on something that maybe like you're really good at, you know, like for, for me, I think that's working with like rock bands and singer songwriters and sort of like find the genre, find your niche, the thing that you already are good at. And then of course, like go and, you know, find local talent, which even though there weren't a lot of venues in the area, there was, Like one sort of coffee shop kind of venue where a lot of people would come and play acoustic, like acoustic versions of their full band and like things like that. And for a long time, I would just go there and I was like there whenever I was done recording or with my daily session, I'd go down and just hang out and you can definitely find talent that way. The other thing is like making relationships with other people that are either trying to do the same thing as you or can maybe help in some other facet. Like for me, it was like making relationships with the couple venue owners and making a relationship with, we have a, a, a rock radio station here called K-Rock. I made a, a re- relationship with um, a woman who runs the locals program, Cat Corbett, where I would send her stuff that I was working on. And she was very honest, like, yeah, this is great. I'm going to play it. Or, you know, this is good, but it just doesn't fit our format or whatever. But through cultivating that, you then have like a few different outlets that you can use like when you're working with an artist to maybe help them beyond just like make a record. Like maybe you can say, Hey, you know, there's a showcase coming up at this local venue. Are you interested? And you know, if the song comes out the way, I think it's going to, maybe we can pitch it to locals only. And you sort of become more of like a point person than just like a recording engineer or like a producer at a local studio, you know?
0: I love that. Yeah. I I had, I had a guest on named Daniel Grimmett, who's a, um, he's kind of like a business coach for audio engineers producers um and he, he, he was telling me it's like you know you have the tangibles and you have the intangibles and so basically like obviously you're recording and you're mixing to the best of your ability but if you can offer value beyond that say like hey let's like introduce you to somebody who works at a radio station or you know let's get some you know we can maybe get some people who, who work for a label into this gig that you're playing like anything like that adds so much more value than beyond just like the regular you know the stuff they're paying for and it makes makes you so much more valuable to them you know totally man like that's why i'm gonna come back to total access and steve right you know time and time again
1: yeah and i talked to brian on the six figure creative a little bit about this too but the idea of like creating relationships instead of like the the awful networking word (laughs) you know especially in la i mean Uh, I'm not sure what it's like over there, but here it's just, if you tell someone that you're like, you know, Hey, where do I go to network? It just, to me anyway, immediately sounds or means like, where do I go to take from people instead of like, where can I, like, how can I cultivate a relationship where we're, where we have like a back and forth where it's like symbiotic and we're trying to help each other because we actually have a relationship that we've created. And it's a very fine line and they can seem similar at times, but it's um just as often that I might call the lady that I was just talking about that runs the venue just to check in and ask how things are going down there because I genuinely care as I might call in mm, for a favor. Yeah. You know, it's like that kind of thinking instead of always calling people with like a can you do something for me, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my buddy Carl Bonner who's been on the show and he's actually coaching me. He talks a lot about this of just like building building relationships you know if you see you know a band that you love on Inst- on spotify dm them on instagram and just say hey i love your record it doesn't mean they're going to necessarily respond right away like yes let's come you know record or like you don't ask them right away hey come record it's like no hey i love that song and maybe in a year maybe in 2 years they'll actually reach out to want to work with you and so it's about like yeah the relationship it's not about
1: networking it's about totally yeah you know, you're right man and being able to like that real hum- to- that
0: real human connection exactly i mean and that's what this podcast has done for me by the way it's like because I interview so many people, it's like, oh, I have like relationships with people all over the industry. I'm not just like, you know, bound by whoever I knew originally, but they're real relationships. I'm not like trying to get anything out of anybody other than an episode, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. But I get to actually, actually get to schmooze with people about real stuff and like, you know, who knows what happens from that? You know what I mean? Exactly. There's nothing, it's, it's all long-term and just, just we'll see, you know?
1: Yeah. And, but like you were talking about the, um, I love the idea of there being like the tangibles and the intangibles because so much of the music business, like if, if we all knew like how to get from here to there and it was like a formula, like we would be rich. Like we would all just be like, we would just tell a band like, great, you have a good song. This is the formula for everything to work in your favor, but it just doesn't work that way. And so much of this is all like building blocks and intangible things and, and subconscious things that we can't really quantify, like. From just being out there and playing shows and then having a social media presence and, you know, and building relationships and all these things start working together, perhaps like the one person that loved your show that one time is going to see a post that reminds them that they just met someone that could. It's just this like wacky world. So of like connecting dots. You never know know? which
0: thing is going to do the the, the big thing. Exactly. Yeah. And so you plant all these seeds.
1: Right. And cultivate them, and you
0: be a genuine person while you're doing it. Exactly. Hopefully, man. hopefully things pan out, but if you put out a lot of good into the world, the good eventually comes back. It's I so true. That's, yeah, that's that's what I've been seeing, and just like on a very long term basis of years, not not exactly.
1: Like, it doesn't happen overnight.
0: Not months, even years. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, man. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what's happened with Total Access since you've joined the team with Wynn. And, you know, I know that you talked a little bit about this on the Six Figure Creative, but I think it's also super interesting for my my audience how you've kind of revamped it and made it a little bit more, you know, cutting edge, modern.
1: Yeah, I mean, the so Win did so many things right with the studio. And it was also a different, you know, it was a different time when he was doing it, like in his sort of the heyday of making records, like in the mid 80s into the 90s. I mean, it was it was busy, like, day in, day out, there was a secretary there. I mean, it was like an entirely, there was no like online presence. It was just word of mouth labels, constantly feeding bands because you had a hit record and it just continued these days. So different. I mean, it really is right now a world where so much of business comes from like online presence and having like, I mean, it's, it sounds crazy, but I remember when I first met Win that there was like a, coming soon thing on the website that was like, it was (laughs) like this multicolored thing that would just like buzz on the screen. And I was like, Oh no, like that's a pro. So even just like little steps, like fixing that. And again, our website's not by any stretch, amazing, um, soon to be facelifted yet again, but at least there are pictures. You can see like bio of us, like some of the artists we've worked with. There's a little bit of info on the gear we have. There's a contact submission that's really clear and easy for people to use. And so a lot of a lot of work that started coming in, particularly local, was from our contact submission form. Like every day, I get one or two, or sometimes even three submissions that come through. And they don't all, it's not like some crazy rate of return where like every single one means business. But it's enough, I feel like having that online presence is enough where people just start remembering that you're there or knowing that you're there. Cause I've had people in some cases that live right down the street that, were like, we had no idea there was a legendary studio right there. You know, we've lived here our whole lives, so I think that, um, the website, having a Yelp page, like just doing like a social media presence, like all of those little things were one step, yeah. And then, and this was pre COVID, of course, we did like a 40th anniversary party where we invited like all of our legacy artists we've worked with and some of the local bands we're working with and and just the community to like come and see the like newly revamped space because we did some like upgrades. And that was, it was awesome. Like that was just such a good like community outreach thing. We wound up having a local paper that covered it and that also helped. And again, it's like the whole building blocks thing that we're talking about. And and the more mm. I found that I was working with like local artists and figuring out a way for it to make sense for them to come in financially, Because there was, you know, the other thing I talked to Brian about is that like a lot of local bands that do know of us have this in their head that they're like, man, we're never gonna be able to afford total access. So let's not even like, that's just out of the equation. So let's go to someone's home studio or, so what I tried to do is figure out a way to to allow them to come in and work here and get the same commercially competitive result that we've been doing for the last four decades without it like destroying their pocket you know? Yeah. And that turns into more work very quickly. If you do a great job with one local band and they get any sort of attention, or even if it's just something that people hear and they're like, wow, that's the best you guys have ever done. Where did you do that? That starts feeding the machine. Right. That word of
0: mouth thing, you got to get it started, but exactly. then once it gets started, it's hard to stop it. If right. you're, if you're doing good work and you're, you're upholding those things. Yeah. That's amazing. So, so tell me a little bit about your role in, in total access. Cause You're the co-owner. Are you like the sole engineer? Do you have other engineers on staff? Um, Like what does your day-to-day look like
1: there? Yeah. So at this point, Wynn is still involved, but less, much less than before. Um, So I'd say that he actually just recently built a home in Northern California, about 10 hours North of here. So he splits his time (laughs) up between here and there. And like, he'll be up there for, you know, two or three weeks and then here for a week kind of a thing, and. Just depending on what the workload is, he might come in to work on some things or help, you know, finish a mix. Sometimes we still work on things together. We actually just did a uh, a b side mix together, uh, which was awesome. It's a lot of fun. And it, it's going to be on a record that's like a remix of the Holy Diver record. And the majority of it's being remixed by Joe Barisi, but we got hired to do like one of the the B side tracks and it was super fun. So but yeah, I am the sole engineer producer guy that's there all the time. I'm usually there. I try to be there Monday through Saturday, but oftentimes it becomes seven days a week to my wife's dismay, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying to, trying oh, to get man. better at that. But we do sometimes, you know, if, if things get crazy, I have assistants that I'll hire to come in and, and help out with things. So got it. Yeah. So it's like basically yeah, you're the, you're the boss <laughs> on yeah. a day-to-day basis. Yeah, which is, it's awesome. And, uh, you know, for a while it was a little bit scary there, but but now it's it's really just like figuring out and settling into like whatever routine works well for you. And I, I'm like a really early riser. So I tend to do really well trying to front load my day, which is, I think, unique to a lot of other people in this business where they like show up at 12 or you. one in the afternoon, but I'm up at like- <laughs> 536 every day. And I'm like, all right, like, let's go. Damn. That's amazing. <laughs> what, how, how long are your days actually?
0: Like if you're, if you're working seven days a week, like 12 hour days.
1: Yeah. I usually try to get in, like I'll wake up and, and try to get a workout in and, you know, have some time like at the house just to do little things. But I usually get in like around nine, nine thirty. 30 And then I'll spend a couple hours like editing or sending emails or doing whatever stuff I have to do before the daily session, which usually starts at noon again, because that's when most musicians wake up, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and then I plan on like a 12 to, you know, it it depends what we're doing. If it's like a full tracking day, it could be an eight or 10 hour day, but oftentimes it's just like a four or five, six hour session. And then I'll hang around for another hour after that. So I'm usually like a nine to seven kind of a guy, like a, a 10 hour day is about as much as I can do without the diminishing returns thing.
0: Yeah. Oh, d- tell me about those diminishing returns. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. When you, when
1: you hit 30, forget about it, right? Oh, everything changes. Yeah. The one beer you had last night, you feel that for a day and a half, man. <laughs> that That is absolutely
0: true. I just, uh, I just spoke with somebody who said he's been off alcohol for a few years and he just has so much more energy. Oh yeah. And it's, uh, and it's just like, man, it's true. Every time I have even one beer, I'm just like lethargic the next morning.
1: Oh yeah, and the idea of like not drinking at all is super appealing. It's just you know after a few days of doing that, you're like I'll just have a beer, and then you're like right back on your <laughs> you know. <So. laughs> as long as it's just one beer, it's not oh, so yeah, bad. Exactly. I, guess.
0: I did want to ask you about working with uh, Mixer Man and Ken Scott. Um, I loved Mixer Man's books. Um, yeah. Man. His Zen Zen in the Art of Mixing was a was a game changer for me because I'm from the era of getting into this. I didn't go to Berkeley and I just kind of DIY'd it because there were no studios looking for internships when I got started about a decade ago. Yep. And when I, re- when I read his mixing book, it just opened up my, my eyes to what this is really about. Yeah, so anyway, so that, I, and I've, I've actually had him on the show. Tell me a little bit about your experience with Mixerman.
1: Yeah, Eric's awesome, man. Like he used to be in Redondo Beach, right? Yeah, so he lived right down the street and he would come work at the studio quite often. And He's been a friend of Wynn's, you know, for decades. So I, I got to know Eric when I was younger and was familiar with his work and, and he was sort of just like a family friend kind of a thing. And then he asked me to play guitar on, I guess he did like an audiobook version of, I think it was The Art of Mixing or, or, or no, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was, I always forget, which is the one where he actually has the like mock band on it. Oh, um, it's the, the adventures the of mixer man, right? Adventures of mixer. Yeah. yeah. So, so they were, he was asked by the publisher to do like an audio book of that. And they wanted to like actually go in and record just like snippets of like a fake band playing so that it sounded, you know, it could go coincide with the book. So I played guitar on that and got to work with him in that capacity. And then we just became friends. Like I would play him stuff that I was working on and, and, uh, right up until he moved, I think he's in Asheville now. He's just such a, such a smart guy, and so talented, but I also just love his opinions on, like, like you said, just mixing in general, it sort of comes from a different place than I I feel like a lot of times people get caught up in the like technical and they forget that it's like the end game is not technical because you're not catering to recording engineers most of the time, you know? Yeah. So, (laughs) (laughs) right.
0: Unless you're steely Dan, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Amazing. And, uh, and just, uh, you know, for the record, Ken Scott, you know, also... Loved his book and obviously massive fan of the Beatles.
1: Yeah, Ken is he's also just a, a class, class act. He actually started working with Wynn at the studio in the early 80s with like the Minutemen and with so many bands that are escaping my brain at the moment. But he would I mean and he's one of those guys that I think he was living out in like either Woodland Hills or Thousand Oaks, which is like an hour and 20 minutes north of where the studio is. And he would make his way all the way down here, passing all these legendary studios to come work at Total Access, just because he loved the room and like loved working with Wynn. Mm. He just creature of habit, which was awesome, you know? So it was cool also growing up like around him. I actually was in a band in my 20s where he produced a couple of songs for us and I got to work with him in the studio. And then sort of similar to Mixer Man, he was asked to do something for like a TV broadcast where it was gonna be like a documentary on his life. And I think they didn't want to pay the like master license fee to use the original, you know, like Beatles and super tramp and Elton John and David Bowie and all these like massive songs. The list, that, the list goes on, yeah, right? It's just crazy. <laughs> um, so they asked him to recreate just like pieces. Do like sound alikes of his own work? So again, I got to play guitar on that. And what was fun about it was like chasing That's really down cool. these specific tones of like, no man, that, that would have been, a country gentleman going through an AC30, and maybe we would have mic'd it this way. And like all that kind of stuff for me was just like mind blown, you know?
0: That's a master class on
1: guitar tone. Exactly. Yeah. And everything. Cause I was there for watching him record everyone and just kind of, you know, like, oh, interesting. So on the piano, he has like two eighty sevens and how far apart they are and why he's doing it. And it's just so cool, you know? So
0: it, it, I know that's a hard to, question to answer, but if you had to distill like a takeaway from Ken Scott, like what would be the one thing that you kind of carry with you today? in
1: the work you do. Yeah. He said something we were talking about. I think it was a recording engineer, producer, fr- like mutual friend. And I can't quite remember who it was, but I just remember the the takeaway of this conversation. And he had just, he had a pretty extensive career himself, but it just gotten out of the business. And we were talking about how sad it was because we're like, oh man, he was so great. And we're going to miss him doing this. And Ken was like, yeah, well, if you can imagine doing anything else, like anything else at all, then you should probably just go do that. And I thought to myself, like, that's such good advice, man. Like, you kind of have to be crazy to do this. And I am, you know, like, this is all I ever wanted to do. <laughs> right. Uh, but if you have that doubt in you where you're like, you know, maybe this just, and, and I'm not talking about, like, the the imposter syndrome and all the stuff that we all deal with. But I mean, like, if you just have this overwhelming sense of, like, maybe I'd prefer doing something else. Not like, can I do this? But I'd rather, you know, maybe I'd rather be a chef or, like, be a firefighter, whatever then his advice is like just chase that because this is really like it's all or nothing and you're probably gonna at some point ruin all of your relationships over it and (laughs) you know (laughs) I just I loved it I was like that's so awesome
0: so oh my god so it's so blunt yeah exactly and it's like uh it's a I guess it's a bit of a mind fuck right like you're like oh how how in in this am I yeah totally wow that's amazing yeah Hey everyone, you may have heard me mention before that I recently started a discord server for the podcast If you want to join the conversation over there You can find a link in the show notes or on the homepage of this podcast at secretsonics.co. In the coming days I'm going to be sharing a sample pack there with some of my own personal samples that I use all the time in my productions This pack will only ever be shared on the secret sonics discord server. So I hope to see you there soon All right back to the episode So let's dive back into kind of your process. I know you're kind of like the de facto engineer of the studio. What does it look like when artists contact you? What's the first thing you do when a band reaches out?
1: Yeah, so I always try to get them to actually, I mean, and I know this has been a challenge with the pandemic, but I try to get them to come into the studio like as fast as possible, just because I feel like, you know, if someone calls and says like hey what are your rates like we're never if that's like the their first like not even like hey how are you like i found out about you guys and i want to ask some questions about blah 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 they're just like hey how much are you like we're going to lose that like we're never going to win that we're it's going to it's always going to be too much and just because if that's like the first priority from you know yeah it's like an instant red flag right it kind of is yeah i mean if it's like a question that comes up in the second or third question then then that's sort of more what I'm talking about. I'll just say, you know, what we should do is let's schedule a meeting to have you come down. And part of my doing so is not in any way to be like manipulative or like hide what the costs are, because I'm fully open with all of those things. But it's just to like, get a chance for the artists to come in and actually communicate what they're trying to do. Because a lot of times, you can't really gather all of the information in a phone call, like you don't really know who you're talking to, it could be, A singer songwriter who's by, you know, and maybe they're not communicating it super well, like, it could be the singer of a band who's calling on behalf of the band. And you don't know that you think you're just working with this one guy or so in any event, I ask them to come down. And then I'll listen, I'll ask if they can play something that they've either have you recorded before. Is this your first time? Like, what's your where are you at? And Either way, I'll ask them to play something, whether it's off their phone or if they have like a demo or even a proper recording of their last record or just anything and play it in the control room over our monitors so we can listen and listen to it kind of like loud and get excited about it and be like, cool. Like I totally get like where you guys are going with this and and then just sort of talk about like maybe where they want to go with the next record or the next song, if they're looking to do the same thing and stay in that same vibe, or if they're looking to double down on something that worked about the last thing they did or whatever that is, just like have like a Mm. a good 20 or 30 minute conversation and then figure out how we can make that make sense. Like, is it a song you're looking to do? Is it an EP? Is it a record? How flexible are you guys with time? Are you looking to come in and just like spend three weeks booked out? Or can we do this where we do basic tracking for two or three days and then just spread it out over the next like couple of months around other you know, things in the studio. And then based on that, I'm able to sort of come up with like a quote on how much I think it's going to cost to do it and maybe like the time frame. And that's usually my like, that's my, my upfront sort of process of like how I, you know, get a, a band to come in.
0: Yeah. That's crazy. Does, does the studio usually book out like weeks on end with one artist or is it usually like a hodgepodge? You know, I find that like, I'm almost jealous of the guys that are you know, guys and gals that are able to, you know, book out weeks at
1: a time. Oh man. I and and just do that. I know. I'm all over the place, you know? Me too. Like I I, there are moments where I've had the opportunity just to work on a single record for a month and there's nothing like it because you feel like you're just, you know what you're doing every day. Like you wake up with like a goal in mind and it's otherwise like, you know, we're talking about you essentially are like flipping back and forth between multiple, this project needs editing. This one needs a vocal still. This one's almost ready to be mixed, but like, there's just so many hats that you're wearing that it's, it's fun, but it can often get a little bit distracting and frustrating because you want to keep everyone yeah. happy and you're just constantly juggling. Yeah, I feel like a lot of stuff gets procrastinated also in this oh, yeah. in this in this world. Right. Especially the editing. I mean, I'll find sometimes that like I've waited and now like six projects I'm working on all need editing before anything can be mixed, and I'm just like, oh God, here we go. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. I, I want to start uh doling that out to other people and um yeah, and delegating it because even if it's not necessarily worth the money it's worth the time save it's almost like my uh what's the analogy i'm thinking of it's like you know if i have a river now all of a sudden it's being, there's like a dam because of all the editing i have to do and so i'm just not as able i'm not able to do as much work totally you know it, it's just it's it's just like this it's just this point that needs to be removed in order to complete more projects so it's it's almost worth the money to kind of Dole it out to somebody else to to ed, to do some of those edits, you know. Absolutely, but it's hard. Some, but that's hard to delegate sometimes because, like, you know how you recorded the guitar and you had an idea of how you were planning on ed- you know, on editing that, and it's
1: there anyways, is that. I, I will these, say that, like, I've given up control on a couple of things that I just don't necessarily enjoy doing. Like, if I'm working, you know, on a project where maybe the drummer like needs a lot of help in the way of like beat detective and and all that kind of sure. stuff. I'll put together yeah. the comp that I think are the best bits and I'm happy to sparse that workout and have someone else do it for me because I just don't enjoy it. Like, and when it, when it comes back in, I'll check it and make sure that it sounds great and that it still feels good. And there are no like ticks or pops, but I, I don't enjoy spending hours doing like minute drum editing. I, for whatever weird reason, enjoy doing that with vocals, but I just don't with drums. And I, I think it's like, especially in rock music, I feel like a great drummer is so important. You know, it's like kind of everything. Like that's really like people think the singer is the quarterback, but I feel like with with rock music, that might still be true. But the drummer is like right, right underneath your your lead singer of importance. So when something just needs like so much work to make it work and there really is no other option because them coming back and doing another 10 takes isn't going to make it better then I just – again, I just comp it and send it out to someone who I know has great ears for that and will do that for me because I don't enjoy it. Yeah. I I noticed
0: that when I sent out vocals, uh, not so long ago for, uh, tuning, you know, there were like maybe a couple of mistakes or things I would have tuned a little differently, but it still got 98% of the way. And then those two edits, I was just able to make on my own because I knew what to do. Exactly. So instead of like three hours of editing vocals, I spent, you know, five minutes exactly yeah that that still cleared the way for me to kind of it plowed the snow that's right (laughs) you know yeah it opened the dam up (laughs) yeah exactly so so are you are you into pre-production when you're working with like rock bands especially like i know that's like a you know often very important or do you kind of just get them in the studio and start recording and just take it from there
1: yeah i I am a pre-production guy and i think it's because i i feel like the song is the most important thing i mean it it's it's everything, like the making sure the arrangement and the melody and the lyric is doing what it's supposed to do. And I'm I feel like the arrangement and melody part of things is really what I gravitate towards. Like I, I work sometimes with lyricists, and, and my wife's actually a great lyricist, and I, I have a handful of others uh, lyricists out there that I work with that are phenomenal at that. But for me, like. If I'm working with a rock band, I'll set up some pre pre pre-production sessions and sometimes it's them just like creating demos however they're able to. Like these days, a lot of people have the means to, you know, quickly whip together a demo. It doesn't have to be amazing quality, but just enough that I can hear the vocal clearly with whatever the band sort of is doing underneath. And then I'll ask for like a lyric sheet and I'll go over it. And then just sort of make any edits or adjustments. And then sometimes like once I have the chance to do that, I'll bring my notes with me into like a rehearsal space with them and just like go through and say, hey, let's just try right here, like shortening this section or doubling this or creating something cool in that moment or figuring out how to make the chorus like a bigger lift just on a on a melodic level. I feel like you're there, but maybe it needs to go up an octave instead or it needs to sort of do something so it doesn't feel like a verse still. Or I mean, and of course there are times that you know, you're not hired for that. Even if they say like they want to hire you as a producer, they're still like, "Well, these are the songs, and we want to record them, and pretty much as is, right. and this is our vision." Then, sure, it's, producer it. is a term that's like in flux these days, right? It is, it, man. Yeah, like you're kind of expected yeah. to do everything when they want you to, you know. But it's <laughs> for me, it depends on how inve- like invested you are in it. If you're, if you feel like you, I, I always feel like I'm like the trying to act as like a conduit for the artist's vision because like they are the ones that have to wear the record at the end of the day. And yes, uh, amen to that. Yeah, you you try to like they trust you because you're you're not trying to like be a superhero that's like wearing a cape that's like, don't worry, I'll fix everything. Like, that's not really your job. Like, you're just trying to make sure you get like the essence of what they're trying to do and make it the coolest that you can. And that's really and then don't mess it up, (laughs) you know? Yeah, don't screw it up. And don't be a dick. Yeah, pretty (laughs) pretty much, man. Uh, You know, I mean, there are moments where you have to be maybe a little bit strong about certain things, but definitely don't be a dick, you know?
0: Right. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, Amazing. In terms of like recording, like I know you have this access to this amazing space, you know, is that, is that, do you find that the space is a a big part of the sound that you're able to get? Or or is it maybe more of a dry space? Are you adding things afterwards? What, What, you know, how much is the recording process a part of your tone?
1: Yeah, I think that the, um, It is an awesome sounding room and I'd be lying to say that, you know, like the, to say that that's not important because that our, our room has sort of become known for getting great drum sounds. And of course, a lot of that is having, you know, the truth is that it's like great drummer, great sounding kit, mic'd really well. You're now you're like. 80% the way there. And then all that's really left is like, if you're in a space that sounds really good, that's helpful. Of course, you know, it's going to make everything you're capturing sound better. And I have that. So it really depends on the vibe of like what you're going for. Um, and I, I always say that for me, it's important to try to visualize or hear in your head. Like if you close your eyes, like what the song is, is, gonna sound like at the end of this? Like, even before you start hitting record or anything, start even setting a microphone up, like, what do you imagine this to sound like? And then just make sure that every decision you make is like pushing you towards that. Otherwise you're just guessing and you're like using things that you've learned and other people's tricks and none of that matters. Like, it's just, you really are trying to push towards like what that idea is.
0: Yeah, I I love that. And that's that's something I've, I've been talking a lot about on the podcast recently of just like, you know, having a vision in your mind and then reverse engineering it or figuring out what tools you need to use in order to get to that vision. It's like, okay, I know what that snare drum has to sound like. And this is why it doesn't sound like that yet. What am I, how am I going to get there? So do I need to record it at a different angle or do it, you know, am I just ducking out some frequency or whatever it is?
1: Yeah. And and of course there's like, you know, part of that is experience. And part of it is knowing some basic tricks of like, if, you know, if your snare sounds dull, maybe you want to boost this frequency and like the obvious stuff that's good to know just on the engineering part. But I really believe that like the source sound is so much more important than any of that, that like, you know, if it's you have everything set up and he hits the snare and you have it miked, you know, and it's miked well. And it's still, it just doesn't sound in your head, how you imagined like the signature snare sound to be for the song. And you have kind of a vision for that. Then try something else. Like you just have to same right. with like guitar amps and, you know, and even like the position of the mics, like even if you thought, oh man, well, they're like a vintage band. So if I use this old amp, it's going to sound right. If it doesn't sound right, it's not right. You know? So yeah. Make a change. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I feel like a lot of people at the beginning of you know, their journeys, they kind of focus on the mixing side and not on the recording side. And I, I know I was this way. I was like, okay, let me just quickly record something. And then I'll play around with all the EQs and the compressors and the reverbs and the delays and see what happens. But it's, that's kind of, it's kind of silly. Cause like I could have gotten a much better sound if I had done the guitar properly and actually mic'd it nicely or, you know, a million and a half other things.
1: Yeah. The crazy thing is like when I get hired to just mix songs and you push you know you sort of you have your template and you're like start pulling the faders up on just the drums and then the bass and then the guitars and you start hearing things if something was recorded really well as soon as all the faders are up like it already sounds great like you should already in my opinion like when you're done recording your production and even if you have like some plugins on or whatever you're doing you should pretty much like have something that sounds excellent i i'm not really a, a big fan or believer in the like you know night and day like the band goes after you're done with all your tracking, they like go home and then they come back and they're like, whoa, it sounds so different than what it sounded like yesterday. Like for me, I'm constantly pushing towards a direction. And the mix is really much more about like cleaning things up and making sure that sonically everything has a place and that you're like yeah. the whole sonic real, real estate thing, you know?
0: Yeah, I think of mixing often is not even the energy, but like the focus, you exactly. know what I mean? Like like the kick
1: has is in the right place now, you know what I mean? The, exactly, it, it's other decisions. It's like, is, you know, I love the kick sound, but is it in the track? Is it giving me enough bottom end? Is it doing this? Is it, you know, those sorts of like later decisions that you can make. Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: Uh, so, so tell me a little bit about your approach to mixing. You know, I know you're in this crazy facility. Is it, do you, are
1: you using outboard gear for mixing or only for recording? Are you in the box
0: hybrid? What, what, what do things look like?
1: Yeah. So these days we're not really mixing on the console much like at all. And Really the reason for it, again, is because so much of the work we do, even when we have like a bigger project that comes through mixed in with the other ones that we're doing, we need to so quickly be able to like set up for the next session that it just isn't feasible. And budgets usually don't, you know, they don't allow for the fact that it might take two, three, four hours to set back up for a session so you can make one small tweak, you know, on a mix or something. So mix in the box, but we use, um, I have an outboard gear like io setup where i have like an 1176 that i always use on certain kinds of vocals that i know is going to sound great i have like you know an ssl that i'll use for um parallel compression for like drums and bass we have just like half you know transient designers like about half a dozen things that get used all the time and they're just sort of at our disposal as inserts.
0: So uh I guess a hybrid approach would be the answer exactly. to, that, yeah, to that question. <laughs> what was wait, what was that console by the way, just uh out of curiosity. That's a uh, uh, that's an AMEC uh GMK. AMEC.
1: Amazing. Yeah. And so you are I guess I'm assuming you're recording into it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it sounds great. We actually nine times out of ten don't use the pre's that are built in. Um we have two sets of pre's that were like this is the the nerdy gear part of the the convo, but Yeah, we get, we get a little nerdy. I try to keep it more philosophical, but then we get a little bit nerdy because it's, it's fun to have a tiny bit of it without too much, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I've just, I I found like the pre's that are in the console sound great, but we have a couple other choices that just are special and be, and they really just make the source sound more honest. And then we have some that are way more colored, like Neves, that just have a vibe that like, you know, if you want, you know, for guitar, it's going to sound amazing. Like you use that kind of a thing.
0: Yeah. Amazing. And, uh, in, in terms of mixing, are you, a, you know, are you into like mixing into a stereo bus? Are you kind of, are you of that ilk? I, th- I feel like most people these days are, you know, pushing, you know, stereo bus compressor, maybe some saturation as like the first step, even.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have a, uh, sort of like a, a, a setup that I, I, these days has been working really well It's just like a, a starting point anyway, you know, which is usually like an EQ of some sort and compression usually really gentle. I actually really like the uh, Neve um, 33609. I think it's awesome for like a bus compressor, just barely doing anything. Just, you know, just, I think it's like one and a half dB of compression or something. And then um, usually there's some sort of limiter at the end. And then maybe like a combination of a couple other things that change from time to time, like just depending on on what it is. But that's usually like the starting point. And I guess routing, routing is key, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I really... I try to get better about working with um, like templates. Like I was saying, having like a mixed template that I can import into the session, it saves so much time, especially if you know that there's like 15 things that you're always gonna use in your session, You know, having all the auxes and everything routed ahead of time so that you're just, you know, and I try to do all of that busy work because sometimes it's inevitable that things are gonna change and you have to, you might import your usual setup, but you're gonna add all these other elements I try to do all of that stuff on a separate day from actually like mixing the song just because it's maybe it's part superstition. But for me, I really feel like it's a different part of my brain. And I'm like, I'm very OCD sort of guy. And I love setting the stuff up a certain way. But after I'm done spending two, three, four hours doing that, I'm like, I'm just not in a in a mode to be able to sit down and start thinking with my ears. I'm still just thinking of like organization. I actually really like the organization part of a mix. I find...
0: That's often like the impetus for a lot of the beginning of the mix for me. Right. I guess not Not like you. I used to do it more like I'll set it up and then the next morning I'll kind of come in. But it, it, I find that I discover what what's actually happening inside of the mix as I'm like organizing it and putting in the right, you know, the right places.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes for sense. For me, that,
0: that discovery element is kind of where the inspiration comes from or just finding the right balances. I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, totally. I mean more also in the way of like even just some of the like housekeeping of like making sure that all of the crossfades or even if it was something you recorded, like I still feel like if you've spent 40, 50, 60, a hundred hours on your production, whatever it comes out to how complicated (laughs) your song is, making sure that like things are consolidated and that when you listen to them and you start compressing them, that you're not going to have artifacts. And I, I really like to make sure of all of that before going in, because there's nothing more frustrating for me later than chasing that stuff down in mixed revision. Right. Before you're like, Oh, oh I, I, d- you know. I totally hear that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll personally just do that in the production session. And um, when I end the production, that's when I kind of consolidate everything and export all the files. And then, bringing all the files into the new mixing session is kind of when I'm, I guess, restarting on a new day and kind of organizing the session and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah, that consolidation stuff, you don't really want to do and then mix. Yeah, exactly. That's, that, I, I'm with you. That's another part of the brain, for sure. Yeah. Do you do anything in particular that kind of helps you work really fast in a session, in a mix, in any, like any any hacks that kind of help things move along nice and quick?
1: I really pay attention when, especially because I'm, often more times than not playing the role of engineer and producer i'm very sensitive to making sure that like engineering choices that i'm making aren't burning the band out you know so like if i want to go for something like maybe i'll do that like if i want to try six different microphones on the singer like i'll set time aside for that at a certain point where it's like not going to take an hour and a half to make a decision and then, then by the time the singer starts singing there's like zero inspiration left i mean I think a a big part of it is just remembering that like while capturing and the technical and the recording and all of this is important, it's sort of like Mixer Man talks about Mm
2: -hmm. what
1: you're trying to capture a human performance of someone and their inspiration and their feeling of it and how they're feeling that day. And like kind of the psychology behind that is equally or more important than anything else that's happening. I mean, I, I, um, just to give an example, I'm working on a record for a country artist who's amazing. Her name's Annie Bosco and like one of the songs, there's a duet with Vince Gill, and it's just incredible players that are on it. And it's so, so much fun. She came in, you know, and almost all of the vocals that she sang, she's like one of those people that you just put something up and just don't try not to mess it up because she's that good. You know, like you're never going to have to really worry about anything. But there was like one night that she came in that I was, you know, we, because I was in this mindset of like, well, this is how she operates and she's going to come in ready and I'll just have her tea ready and we're going to hit record and, you know, good to go. And, it was sort of an off day for her and she was, she had allergies going on and had sort of like a stressful afternoon and all of these things that I didn't take into account and didn't stop to ask like, Hey, like, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? Like what's going on? And, and so we started recording, like it wasn't as easy as usual and not because her vocal performances weren't great. Cause they always are. It's just, there was like a thing missing that I felt in my like soul where I was like, the emotion. Yeah. Like something was just off. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I realized it and quickly stopped the session was like hey come in real quick I just want to talk to you and just like came in and sort of like redirected and tried to find like a center for everything and sometimes when you do that you realize you have to actually come back on a different day like it's just not going to happen but sometimes even just taking 10 minutes and like having tea together in the control room and just like chatting about whatever it is and it's like part of the psychology part of the thing that people don't They forget to talk about that as like a producer that's part of what you're doing is like trying to capture this amazing human performance and if that human that you're working with is like not feeling (laughs) it like that is counterproductive to all of the hundreds of hours that you're going to spend so you might as well get that right you know and and so anyway i take that back to even when we're just like setting things up like If I know it's going to be a long setup day, I'm not going to then say, yeah, let's set up for five or six hours and then expect the band to record for like eight hours after that. Cause it's just, you're not going to get anything good. Wow. That's such a great takeaway
0: also for the audience of, uh, you know, all those things, setting expectations, but also the psychology and the therapy that happens in, in the recording session and knowing when to call it or, you know, cause there, there are, there are times when, you know, you're with an artist and, you know, this is the time they booked out and they waited a couple weeks, but it's still not the right day. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, man. Having the the courage to say, you know what? Come back another time. It's okay. Like, this is not it. And I know, like, I, I recently worked with an artist and, you know, she came in to sing and it was like, this is not your voice. Like, you're not singing. And like, even though we waited a couple of weeks to book the session, you're going to have to come back and again because this this is not the voice that we know you can get, you know, for this yeah, song. And, man,
1: and it's, what a waste. Right. That, that's a hard have that conversation like sort of frequently with artists. And I honestly will sometimes bring it up at the beginning of production that that's a possibility that at some point might happen. And let's just like try to recognize when that does that. It's not a, you're not doing great. It's just, this isn't going to get us like the vision that we discussed in the beginning. It's this is not going to get us there. And anything that's ever going to like knock us off our course of that really important vision that we talked about is just not worth even stressing about. Like, let's just come back to it when we can, you know, when we're at a hundred and part of what I, you know, had talked to Brian about as well is like my approach of how a lot of times I'll set budgets for bands have less to do with, you know, like an hourly sort of thing where they're coming in and expecting something in a certain amount of time and more to do with like a project quote. So like they know what they're gonna, Mm -hmm. you know, be in for every step of the way. But the the real benefit and pro is like if a singer comes and he's not feeling it or if the musicians just, you know, like we chased a tone for a couple hours and we just didn't quite get it. And we're kind of burnt out now. Like we can schedule a session tomorrow or in two days and come back and you don't have to worry that like, but this was the time that we were going to record that part. It's not, nothing's that precious, you know?
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm hundred percent with you on that. Whenever I can, I book an, I do a, a, a project rate, not an hourly rate, right? There's some things you have to do hourly. Of course. Uh, but, um, I, when, you know, if I'm doing a song production, it's going to be a project rate. And it's it's good and it's like it's twofold good like it, it incentivizes me to do a better job because it's just you know i'm going to do it this is the price and i i don't i'm not thinking about you know what's my hourly at this point even i'm just like let's do the let's do the project and they're not thinking about the hourly rate they're just okay and we're both on the same team of wanting to just get the best possible product out of this exactly. getting the best possible and, and it takes like the
1: the excuse i feel like out of both sides of well we were on like a certain budget and a certain time frame because I mean, we're always on a certain time frame, like in life with everything, like there's, you know, there isn't like, even when we do project quotes, that doesn't mean that we can spend six years working on it. Like there's still parameters to everything, but it's right much less pressure. And we just, we work until we can't work anymore. And then we come back and we just keep sort of pushing this thing along. And, and of course there are some projects that works really well for, and some that maybe in hindsight, you think, gosh, that wasn't the best approach because it wound up taking you know, way longer than I thought or whatever. (laughs) Like years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that can happen. (laughs) But generally speaking, I feel like it works better than going the hourly approach you know?
0: Yeah. And I think also what you were talking about, bringing the artist in at the very beginning to kind of go over the song, you know, say like, what, what you know, what are you trying to accomplish? What is this? That, that can kind of give you the clues of what it really is going to take. And you kind of mentioned that already that like, yeah, I, I, I'll I kind of give the, the price based on what I think this is really going to take. So you kind of, you, you'll see red flags at the beginning if you think things are not actually going to work out. And Absolutely. it's just a matter of whether you want to address those red
1: flags or not. That's 100% correct. And I, I feel like for me, the Not even like it's not even a red flag, but it's like the sign of this could be more work than you might think is when the artist doesn't have a vision at all. Maybe it's their first time recording or maybe it's not. Maybe they've worked with like 18 different producers and they just feel like it's all their faults collectively that they haven't figured out what their sound is. That's usually an issue for me because it means they're <laughs> they're chasing something. And whether it's chasing another artist sound, which is always like a red, that's a red flag for me. is like, I want it to sound just like Billie Eilish. Like, OK, but she's already doing it. And the reality is you're going to release your song that sounds sort of in the production style of Billie Eilish. And then she's not going to be doing that anymore. She's going to have graduated to this new thing. And it's not going to be cool because people are going to be like, you sound like 2019 Billie Eilish, like. The best shot you have yeah. is just doing something that feels right to you, you know? That that is, that
0: is the lesson, right? Like, and that's something that I'm trying to teach myself and I'm trying to tell the artists that I work with is just like, you have to double down on yourself. Otherwise, you're not interesting. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not the best bass player in the world, but I sound like me when I play bass. Right. And that's the important thing. And I'm never going to play like Jaco Pistorius. And I don't want to play like Jaco Pistorius because I like muddier, you know, <laughs> kind of tones. But, but like, that's great. That's me. That's Jaco. Like, we each have our camp. And, like, if you want to market yourself as an artist or as a producer, you need to figure out what you do best and kind of say, this is me, you know. I, I, and I'm maybe not all the way that because I still serve the song. I, I serve the artist. I don't make the productions about me. Right. But it, but like people know what I do best and that's why they come to me.
1: Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And that's,
0: and that's like the goal, I think. You I know? think
1: that's, man, that's the goal in like every facet of this business. And it's, I mean, it's a conversation I have often with bands that I'm helping like develop, you know, sounds and, and everything for is like, it's art number one, of course. Make yourself happy. Do the thing that like just makes you feel a certain way. But when we talk about like, doing this then for a living and creating a business out of it and creating a brand, it's important for people to understand like what it is that you're doing. doesn't mean that you have to be pigeonholed, but you know, if you went into like an Italian restaurant and on the menu, you saw Southern fried chicken, you'd be confused. You know, even if the chef yeah. was like, well, I do both great. Like that's awesome. But that's a little bit concerning. Like what exactly is it that, you know, what is your branding? Like, what do you sound like? What, And that could en- encompass or encapsulate a bunch of different things but at the center, it should definitely there should be like a vision for what it is that you're trying to do and like what you feel like you do best as an artist and run with that. Um Yeah. I think people also are afraid of that because they're they're maybe they're so used to their
0: own preconceived notions and you know, like they're they're so used to how their brain works that it seems boring. It's like, no, I want to sound like this. What I do is boring. But you have to kind of almost fight that feeling. Obviously, you you need to evolve and learn and get better, but like you have to embrace what you do. Only I'm in my brain and I'm bored of some patterns that I usually do. Other people aren't, aren't thinking about those things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's worth thinking about, I guess. Yeah. What, what, what is it that, that makes you, you? Exactly. I don't know. Uh, I guess speaking of that question, like, I don't know, thinking about your approach to things, what are, what are maybe some of the things that you do that you think is unique to you? Like in terms of like your production, mixing, anything.
1: I like to think it's hard to to answer that question. I I I like to think or imagine that the things that are unique for me are the fact that I come at this with like a musician a musician's mentality first and like a and an arranger and a writer and you know understanding how music works and then learning how to sort of like capture those sounds second, as opposed to a lot of other amazing engineers and producers that look at things very much more from the perspective of like, how is this all going to sound like on a sonic level, which is important also. It's just, I think that there's like the language of music, being able to communicate with musicians and a singer as well, and be able to, you know, to say, pay for this note. Can you actually pop into your mix voice? So you're not pushing so hard. And then we can double that and it's going to sound bigger, but it's not going to sound as strainy. And then let me sing you the harmony part. Cause I worked it out. And like, I think those sorts of elements of being able to incorporate like musicianship into production is a big part of what I feel like I, I bring to this.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. That's awesome. I, I feel like there's like a continuum of like kinds of producers where there's like producers that are musicians that happen to be producers. And then there's like, total engineers that happen to produce right but they're really like focused on and then there's some there's a whole area in between yeah the overlap (laughs) the overlap (laughs) i feel like we both kind of fall somewhere in the in-between area yeah
1: totally man i mean i i still practice on a bunch of different instruments i still keep up trying to i mean guitar is my main but i still i have a piano at home and i still try and practice that and i'm always working on you know the vocal thing and and coming up with the coolest harmonies that i can and just and playing bass. Whenever I hear bassline that I love, I run home and try and learn it. I just think it's important to like keep the musicianship side up, as well as it is. Whenever there's like a new plugin that someone turns me on to, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm gonna if I'm actually gonna go and like rent it or buy it or do the trial or whatever. Like, I wanna. Learn it enough to be able to figure out if it's going to serve anything for me, you know, just so that I'm not like one of those guys that has like, I have everything and I can't really use any of it, (laughs) you know, because it can get overwhelming, especially in the, in the, on the engineering side with how many plugins and cool pieces of gear there always are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I, I love that. I feel like I should probably demo pl- plugins
0: a bit more before I buy them. I, ha- I have a couple, <laughs> a couple, a couple regrets.
1: Yeah, of course. But
0: you know, I, usually the regret is like you just forget about it because you already have like a workflow and then you don't, you forget about the new plugins that you bought because you already are using the same plugins for your mixing. Cause you just
1: know, you know, it works. Yeah. Sometimes I'll try and force myself to like use something. And then if it just isn't working out then I'm like, all right, I'll just go back to the thing that I know is going to get me there. But especially when it's like cool sound effect sort of things, or if you're trying to go, you know, like on one of the mixes that one of the songs that I think I had put on the playlist that I sent you, there was like some drum loop sort of element. And like the things that I put on that were not what I usually would have. They were like new plugins I was messing with and just like forcing myself to arrive where I I know it's supposed to sound, you know, sometimes that helps.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's, it's fun. Like people don't, I think it's like hip to be cheap about plugins and say it's just about what's in your in your ear and and like getting that, which is true. And I overall uh, buy that approach. But there's something inspiring about playing with something new. You know, the same way like like playing your instrument inspires you to do come up with a part for you know the song. It, it could be the impetus of everything. And a plugin or you know a new instrument, any of these things can really just kind of inspire you to kind of do something new. And sometimes spending money on on gear does help. Absolutely. Even though it maybe it shouldn't be the go to move, but but every uh, once
1: in a while though it shakes things up
0: <laughs> yes yeah. absolutely yeah so speaking about your approach to working and you know talking about plugins or whatever let, let, let's check out the, the sauce segment cool man um, yeah, let's do it yeah you, you sent me a song called War Profiteer by Joker's Hand so let's have a listen for about 90 seconds and we'll talk a little bit about what went into it sound cool?
1: sounds good
2: hey for the goody and the commas, what's a little pain if you're living like a baller hey Level cities like a bomber, making bank my women hotter than a sauna. Call it selling my soul, getting money, yeah, the less that you know. With the flick of a pen, make a nation fall, I don't care what or when. That seven nation army But all of this, not sorry. More the more she want me Don't care unless she naughty Hey, for the goody and the commas What's a little pain if you're living like a baller Hey, level cities like a bomber Making bank keep my women harder than a sauna Hey, to the fella getting shot up Making all the noise doesn't lead to any drama Hey, with the money I'm set Hoping that the people never give it a rest <laughs> hey. Like Cruella Deville, Get that money, she don't care what I kill hey. Thinks I'm holding it down Calling all her friends when she slips out of town What foreign cars, I got it Don't lie, I know you want it Make bank, I'll stay, I promise Bought you now, let's be honest for the the what's a little
0: Yeah, Steve, sounds great. Thanks, man. Um, it's almost like a, a pop punk band and Sublime had a baby or something. Exa- you nailed it. That's exactly what we were going for. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess my discography and my brain worked there, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the funniest thing about that song, usually when I play it for people, and that song I actually spent a while on the radio and out here, is That's that— sick they're not a reggae band. Like they're as far from it as really as it gets, which is sort of what I loved about this song is that it's, you know, the lyrical content when I first heard the demo, which was just him singing and playing an acoustic guitar is like very much about profiting off of other people's suffering, which makes a lot of sense with where things have been the last couple of years in this country, (laughs) you know? And (laughs) uh, I just thought it was so clever because it's like really a dark topic, but, and I know there's a name for it. And I always forget when there's something that's like lyric- lyrically dark matched with something that feels like really uplifting and happy. And it's that like sort of mm-hmm. weird mixture. It's probably a German word, right? It's like one of those. Yeah, like- right. Exactly. So, and I thought that it would be cool to honor that. And part of it was like, it already sort of felt like he had the, you know, the sort of the the reggae skank thing going on. But I was like, man, it'd be really cool to play into that. And And like, even at the end of the song where there's like a, that la 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 line that comes in just like little things like that, that make it almost feel like childlike and happy, even though it's super dark. So that that's sort yeah. of what I was chasing on this one.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. And I like, oh, there's also those like little cool candies, like the like the the money clinking on the left ear. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, there, there's some. So that was like the final final thing we did was like search for things or create thing like elements like what your candy sort of sampled ish sounding things that whatever was going on with the lyric sort of underline it and put it in bold so that it made people like really. It's like sort of a, a hack of how you can make a listener like. Be like, oh, that's cool, Even just subconsciously, because it's like tell- it's like putting an exclamation part after a sentence, you know? Yeah. But yeah, there were there were a lot of cool like little things that happened on this one. It was so much fun putting the song together. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, I mean, so the first step, you know, was I had the demo, and so I had uh, some of this. I'm I'm gonna I'm sort of imagining what happened because I can't totally remember everything, but just from working with those guys, Joker's hand a lot. I'm imagining that I had a pretty good demo that was recorded in Logic by Kevin, the singer, of him just playing and singing, and I asked for separate stems of those, put them into a Pro approachable session. I probably moved things around a little bit, and I think we worked on the arrangement of this one, he and I, a little bit, making sure that it was how we wanted it, extending the ending, just like little things like that. And then from there, I had a couple of, you know, his bandmates came in, a uh, drummer and bass player who are both great players. And I had sort of an idea for the chorus from the beginning of production of having sort of like a programmed bass part doing this like wobble in the chorus that sort of gives you like a bump, 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 bump. Kind of like just gives this pulse. Um So what I wanted him to play would be not that, but something that would actually be just like a really catchy ear candy hook, you know, that would just make the whole thing move. And this, the person who played it is Matthew Dennis, and he's such a good bass player. And, and what I love about his playing is that he always comes up with these things that are so singable. Like you walk away almost singing the bass line, you know, oftentimes.
2: Yeah. And the way that yeah. I sort of,
1: because I loved what he played in the verses in particular, the way that I really highlighted what he did was after he was done recording it, I recorded myself playing on a Moog synth the exact same line and then blended the two. So you get a lot of that like really subby programmed bass. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was like, that's a cool,
0: cool and interesting bass tone. You know what I mean? Like not typical.
1: Right, exactly. Um, And then I even had like guitar. I think it was in the chorus following like this underlying guitar line because you have the obvious guitars that are just playing the changes. And then there's like one guitar part that's following pieces of the bass line That's just going like gung. Gung, 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 and just like picking up pieces of the bass and then compress that really heavy high pass it so you're not getting any bass information and tuck it with like, a, you know, and it just sounds cool. It just makes the bass sound even thicker. Like it's working in multiple octaves, you know?
0: That's so cool. And also like when you're doing like a ska kind of beat, you know, the bass has so much room, right? Because it's, it's playing when the kick isn't playing. Exactly. So it has all the space to kind of just breathe and melodic and, you know, like the Paul McCartney thing or the, yeah, even though obviously Paul McCartney's not a reggae player, but whatever.
1: Yeah. No, like totally it, it, it
0: has that room to do the melodicism, you know?
1: Yeah. And, and the drums were quite simple played all the way through. I wanted to keep it that way so that it felt like a drum loop because then like in sections, and I can't remember quite where, but I know at least the first verse I did sort of what we were talking about a minute ago where I was using plugins that I might not have used before. Um, but I had him play really tight all the way through the song. Comped that, which didn't take very much time because he's a great drummer. And then for the first verse, I put Saturn, which is by Fab Filter, and mm-hmm. you know Decapitator by Sound Toys, and and basically just created like a, a a loop that sounds like it was like a drum machine kind of a thing that's going on underneath. And then I had a percussionist come and play over that. So there's like you know maracas and a and like all these like instruments and vibra slap and spots, and it's it's like meant to sound sort of silly and uplifting and so cheery the whole way through, so that there leaves like. On my, the philosophical, like where I was going with this song level, like it leaves all of the room for the darkness of what he's actually saying, because all of these other elements are just like carefree and sound, the guitar parts sound happy, they're uplifting, and and then you have this lyric that's like very doom and gloom.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna have to re-listen and and listen out for the lyrics a bit more. I feel like I often miss lyrics because I'm mostly getting a vibe. And obviously I'm listening to the the vocalist, but like, I think lyrics are like, it takes me like three listens to (laughs) realize what the lyrics are. And
1: and we knew that too, working on it, part of the, that was part of the challenge. And also why I wanted to add samples was to make sure people actually listened because it's Mm. really easy to just be like, oh, this is a feel good song until you hear what he's saying with, just like Cruella DeVille, you know, get all that money, don't right. care who I kill or whatever that line is. It's just like, Ooh, that's a good one. You know, <laughs> it's dark. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that's super dark. Wow. Well, amazing. Well, it sounds great. And,
0: uh, yeah, I, I guess my, my last question in terms of like tonality would be like the drums, was it just the Saturn and the fab filter, uh, the Saturn and decapitator, like the snare drum really popped.
1: Yeah. So that sound is just on the, like the loop part of the song in the beginning, and then when the kit actually comes in full, I'm pretty sure I still keep that loop going underneath, mm. but it's just the sound of, yeah, it's, it's, how I, I had the drums sort of work in that day. I can't remember what snare he was using. It might've been, I don't like remember. Like a piccolo or something. Yeah, yeah. It was something that was tuned pretty high. And, um, and then just how I usually sort of capture the drums and, you know, with just the sort of the usual nerdy parallel compression stuff. And there was really nothing too fancy about any of that.
0: Nice. Do you remember what bass, uh, the bass player was using? Oh, just cause I'm a bass player. So i I wish interested. that I
1: could. He's, he is again, one of those guys that will show up with like three or four bases. And the funniest thing, and I can't remember if it was on this one or not, is that all of it. I mean, he has like everything that you could want, like every different sounding, but you know, an amazing old P bass. And then, you know, some like new custom bass by Dingwall, and like all these different, like, you know, things that he can do. But I, right. I feel like for these sessions, he brought in some like $300 crutch, that like, j- it just sounded phenomenal, like crazy, crazy good. And we were joking the whole time that he spent like, you know, 20 or $30,000 in his life buying bases so that he could bring in like the cheapest one to a session. And it just sounded like the right one. I think that might've been yeah. what he used on that.
0: I sometimes that's all you need. I, I'm pretty much exclusively playing this like Epiphone viola bass these days. Nice man. It's just the sound I've always wanted. And I didn't know it. And what? It's like $400. So cool. Put some flat, put some flat ones on it. I was going to ask. Like the yeah. So you have
1: flats on there. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah.
0: I don't know. It's just, it's just the sound I've always wanted. And I didn't know. It. I was like, okay, I went for music, man. I got to the P bass and the P bass was close. And then, and then I, I played this. I was like, oh, this is, this is it. You yeah, know? man. Are you usually? 400
1: bucks. That's so cool. And you do know? you usually cut that like just through DI or do you do like DI and an amp?
0: Yeah, I do DI. I often use like the Plug in Alliance SVT. Okay. Um, it's so good for that kind of a sound. Yeah. Man. Um but um yeah, I go DI. I'm i I'm pretty basic. That's cool. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah. Anyways, but um enough about my bass playing. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, I want to ask you a little bit about um energy. I know you talked about doing like 10 hour days, um uh, <laughs> uh seven days a week, you know. That's not something I could do right at this point in my life. So, so how do you keep your creative energies going? You know, just energy in general. Do you have any routines? Anything you do specifically that kind of gives you the the energy to not only get into, not only live your life and do your work, but also feel creatively energetic?
1: Yeah, and I and I really have been trying to take Sundays off. Like, I, and I go through periods where I get successful with that. And man, I, I just have the personality where I can't really sit still, and I always feel like I should be working on something and not because I have to, but because I enjoy it. Like I love pushing things forward and being excited and like my community of musicians and everyone that I text and talk with, like, I just love, I love it so much that it's hard for me to disconnect to, to the point where it can be problematic. Um, like entering workaholic zone, you know? So I've been trying to take Sundays off, even when I do that, I know I drive my wife Michelle crazy cause I'll like sit there with this look in my face of like I should be doing something, but I'm getting better at just like relaxing and enjoying, even if we do nothing or just stuff around the house or walking the dog or whatever, just like really like leaning into that time to like not focus on work and not answer the phone, not look at social media or do any of those things. During the week when I wake up early, I always try to work out like first thing, and have like an hour again of disconnect time. And I've gotten better again about not bringing my phone with me into the garage. and just like having that time to like refresh. I I just feel like it's so hard these days. We're in like a world where everything is so instantaneous. Like you're accessible at all times. If someone has your number or social media or email or anything, your phone's just dinging all, all the time, you know?
0: I know. Oh my God.
1: Yeah, it's it's really hard to disconnect.
0: And um luckily I'm I'm I keep the Jewish Sabbath, so I get twenty five hours off a week, which is honestly I think the reason why I'm a sane human being awesome, at this man. point. But I I, I I don't know how people do it. With with that with even with that, it's not enough. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't know how people do it without it. It's like So is that the, your only the, day
1: the, off or do you take another day off as well?
0: So Fridays in Israel are like Sundays in America. Right. So it's it's the day before the Sabbath and so when we're not locked in, <laughs> which we currently are going to be tomorrow. Um, my my son has like half a day of daycare and we usually will, maybe my wife and I will go out for breakfast or maybe we'll clean the house and get groceries or whatever. So it's not just mostly because I'm a dad and because I keep the Jewish Sabbath, like it's really hard for me to do more than five days a week right. of work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm just between all those things, it's just like, my my plate is so full. <laughs>
1: yeah, totally, man.
0: Which is, you know, obviously things things I'm I'm grateful for. So, but um, yeah. So, but the so I usually work like mo- Sundays through Thursdays.
1: Gotcha. That's yeah. my,
0: That's my work. That's my work week.
1: Yeah, I, I think in the beginning too, I was always afraid that if someone asked if they could come in, like, well, hey, what about Sunday for me? Because that's my day off. That I would have to say, man, I, you know um, sure. Like let's do it because out of fear of them, if you say no, unfortunately that's my day off, they would just be like, all right, well I'll find someone else to work with. But I've actually f- found that people do really respect that boundary, like of just yeah. even just giving like a hard no. I mean, and maybe part of it's cause I'm not just starting off anymore, but just being like, Hey, I actually can't do Sunday. It's, it's my one day off. I, I can't actually remember any time that anyone is like pushed on that, like maybe once or something. And I'm like, look, I'm really sorry. Like, I don't, I don't have a traditional weekend. It's just the one day for me to sort of shut my ears off, you know?
0: Yeah. You got to hold it. You got to hold it safe, you know? Like yeah. Keep it, keep it precious. Keep it safe keep or whatever. Super, the Lord keep it the, safe. Yeah. Keep it. That's it. The Lord <laughs> of the Rings. You know what I'm talking about? Of course, man. Yeah. Ninth grade. Um, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, totally. It, it, it's, it is amazing how understanding people are. And usually if they're not understanding, it's probably not a good client because- like, I, I feel like if someone, for me, if it's a Friday, let's say, you know, recently I worked with a good friend of mine on a Friday because, you know, he's also a working dad and it's just like, okay, cool. Let's do this on, but we booked it like a month in advance. Like right. this is a Friday, like we can make it happen. You know what I mean? But most, most, most of the time I'm not working on Fridays. And if somebody's like, oh, but I need to get in tomorrow. I need to get in tomorrow. I was like, that's like, I don't want to work with somebody that wants to do it tomorrow because that's just going to be stressful. And their, their, their goals are not the same of my, as my goals. Exactly, man. Yeah. Like my goals are like long-term I want to be working and, and do making good stuff with you. Not like get in tomorrow, get out, you know, like that's stressful. That's not, that's not why I'm working in music, you know?
1: Yeah, totally, man. And there are, you know, I also feel like sometimes if you have, like, if you're working on a project where it goes on for like, you have to work every day because like, maybe you are working on a project that doesn't allow a day off. Like it's like they're coming in for 14 days and it's just plowing straight through. Cause that's, they're doing it a certain way where maybe there's a deadline that has to do with like a labeled or something, you know, that's on that level. Um, then immediately following that I'll schedule myself like a day off after I don't care what day of the week it is just because often if you don't, and then you have to wait for until that weekend rolls around, it's been like 20 days and you're just not a nice person anymore, you know?
0: That's smart. Yeah, actually, this week, I, I took it easy at the beginning of this week because I had a gig at the end of last week. And it was just like that I'd been working towards for a long time. And yeah. It was just like, I, I'm going to need to take a minute. And then, of course, my week got cut short now. But whatever, you know, it yeah, is what totally. it is. Yeah, Steve, this has been really, really fun. I've learned so much chatting with you. It's been a really great conversation. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about the studio. Like, I know it, this is a place with a lot of legacy. What do you, you know, see the future for Total Access Studio, what does it look like? What what are, what what are your plans, you know, in the foreseeable future?
1: Yeah. So there's a few things I'm really excited about. You know, first things first is just to continue building this local scene that I'm working towards and, you know, just to continue working with the amazing local talent that's around here on the legacy side, as far as, you know, um, and, and of course, by cultivating that local scene, when you start having bands that move their profile along and some of them start getting signed labels and on the radio and that then they sort of, they become the legacy in a sense. But I am working on some legacy projects at the moment, one that's about to come through that we're really excited about, which is gonna be a Black Sabbath live album from the early 80s. And I'm so excited to start working on that. Um, It's with Ronnie James Dio singing. Um, So that's gonna be really fun. And the other sort of thing that I've been, you know, putting a lot of focus in and and what sort of prevented me from having my usual one, one day off a week is that I just opened a rehearsal suite. That's like five units down from the recording studio, which is actually where I am right now. It's uh, I'm in the little like side writing room that we have set up, but it's like a full, um, sort of like the idea of mixing an Airbnb with like a rehearsal studio uh, in that a band gets like their own private entry code. It's only for that one band and it's a thousand square feet. It's an acoustically treated room, great gear. Um, It's like everything that's always frustrated me about rehearsal studios that I've had to go to in my life as a musician and as like a producer doing pre-pro where you're like, God, this room sounds terrible. It stinks. It's like there are other (laughs) bands making – there's like a polka band next door. Like they're just – There's, you know, stains everywhere. There's like no coffee, which for me is important, you know, just like the little things, you know, so the stinky, the stinky microphones can't, you know, yeah, exactly. Just the awful smelling microphones. So I um, decided to create that with like the same branding that's next door. And, and it's, this is actually just the first month that we're open and it's been great, man. Like just another great way for like outreach for the, the area locally, with local musicians and also with like some of the mid-level bands that we've worked with over the years. Like we have a pretty, pretty well-known band called fortunate youth that's coming in to rehearse. And, you know, it's been fun, like having that, that mixture of, of bands that we've worked with over the years and people that had never even heard of the recording studio that now are coming in here to rehearse.
0: That's amazing. I feel like maybe you could even start doing like some of your pre-production sessions in there and then, you know, have another engineer kind of use the, the, you know, the regular total access recording studio and kind of help Pay both uh both pockets if,
1: if exactly, you know I mean. man. Yeah, I mean, even that was that actually was the other part of it for me was having a place because to do pre production because a lot of times like when you're working on a project, the idea of spending an entire day a- and you know you want the band to really be able to hear themselves and communicate and sometimes over headphones, it's it's <clears> just it's separated, you know and. There's there's still something about it for me about doing pre-production like all together in a room where you can sit down and hear each other and then talk and it, there's really nothing like it.
0: Yeah, there's there's something about the feel of the room when you're not when you're not in headphones and in your monitors. Sometimes they could be great, but you miss you're missing something. Always. Yeah, know? totally.
1: There's a little bit of a disconnect. Yeah,
0: especially as like a like as a bass player trying to lock in with the drummer, it's more fun <laughs> in the room. What am I? Oh, yeah. what, what can I tell of you? Course, you can yeah. feel it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Totally.
0: Amazing. Well, Steve, this has been really, really fun and, uh, love getting to meet you and, and get to learn from you. I wanted to ask you a question that I ask everybody on the show. Uh, it's, it's the final question. Um, so just like looking back on your journey, you know, was there something that you maybe did or didn't do that? You know, you today would tell your earlier self like, Hey, Steve, keep at that. It's going to get you where you need to go. Or maybe Steve, don't do that. It's holding you back. What would be that one, that one piece of advice you'd give your earlier self?
1: Yeah. So, um, I, this sort of, is a little bit cheesy advice, but I actually have this on my phone because it's important enough to me that I like to reference back to this. So I'm going to look this up real quick. Um, Here it is. And I was actually just, I was just talking with someone on a podcast a couple days ago on recording studio rock stars with Lid Shaw. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, uh, with him. Oh
0: yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. And
1: I, I sort of relayed some of this info as well. Cause he asked like, if you can go back and talk to your earlier self, like what would some of those things be? And this is something that I tell a lot of bands that I'm I'm working with. So I'll just blurt this out. It's actually kind of a few things and hopefully some of it's helpful for anyone that's listening. Um, and then I can explain some of this too. So one is be great, which of course is true in, in anything that you're trying to do, but I'll keep going. Show up on time, show up with a positive attitude, build relationships, don't network, don't give up, be a cockroach <laughs> and zoom out and allow yourself to really track your progress and then celebrate that. And so just going back, like the, the be great thing is whatever, whatever you're going to decide to pour everything into, you you really have to just like, I look at this all the time, just to remind myself that like, you have to continue to educate yourself on whatever it is that you're doing, continue to practice, continue to just like, try to be the best version of what it is that you're doing. The showing up on time and with a positive attitude is going to help you build relationships. Like that's just like being respectful and obvious. We already talked about not networking, but actually caring about the other person. (laughs) And then the not giving up and being a cockroach theory for me is like, if you're doing all of those previous things that I said, and you refuse to give up, people are going to take notice. It really is just a matter of time. And you're going to be that guy that just won't go away. And- Mm. And, and, and then to me, the, hence the cockroach, exactly (laughs) be be indestructible, right? The thing that is the most important of this for me is like to actually zoom out from time to time and like track your progress and celebrate whatever that progress is, because it's really easy, you know, to be working on something like we, the kind of work that we do. And then three years later, you're like, gosh, I'm still not where I thought I'd be, or I'm not where I want to be, or I'm not where this guy on Instagram is or whatever the awful, comparisons we do all the time without realizing like hang on a second like let me zoom out three or five years ago like look at all these amazing things i've accomplished and sure there's still things that i can do that i want to do moving forward but if you don't allow yourself the time to do that and like the mental capacity i feel like you're just constantly chasing something that you think is eventually going to make you happy without ever really being happy and life's too short for that in my opinion
0: yeah that's so so important and I think I've mentioned this like three podcasts in a row, but there's like the there's a quote that that Gary Vee talks about. I don't know if he originated the quote, but it's like, you know, people overestimate what they can do in a in a year and they underestimate what they can do in a decade. And if you look back a decade, it's like, holy shit, look how much happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. In a year, you know, maybe you didn't get your to your goals or you did, or some of them or whatever. But a decade is like, wow, a lot can happen in that amount amount of time. Actually on, on that, I wanted to ask you kind of do you have any like ways of zooming out and looking at, you know, the progress and the the tra- trajectory? What does that kind of zooming out process look like for you?
1: Yeah, it can be really, it can be hard. I mean, I think for anyone that's that's tricky, but I, I try, like I keep a lot of notes in my phone and a lot of times like these sorts of wacky things that'll come into my mind or like random thoughts or, you know, I'll write down lists of certain projects that I've been working on because I'm trying to keep track of whatever elements. So sometimes I'll just like go back through my phone or emails or just try to like put myself back into a time period that was a few years back and remember like maybe go through my photos that's actually really helpful because you start like I take a ton of photos in the studio and and of you know just my wife and I in different places in life and and just like sort of see where you were five years ago and you'd be shocked at like all of the crazy and cool things that you've done and and a lot of times it's easy to forget and just think what's next but without sort of thinking that like life isn't just a checklist you know if you're just going down this thing just like check I've done that check I've done that. <laughs> like there's so what's the end game then is it just like Shit. you know <laughs> <laughs> no that if
0: if life is just a, is just a checklist then you're you're like a prisoner of your own you know making you know yeah you're just you're a prisoner to whatever you decided this is the thing I'm going to check off today this is the thing I'm gonna check off tomorrow <laughs> right and that's that's rough you know
1: yeah exactly
0: I think it's funny. It's when you said the uh, looking back at pictures from like a few years ago, it's like, if you ever open up like a lot, like a, a session in your DAW from like three years ago, that's be a good like one too. shock. Yeah. Wow. That's a like, good one, man. I was using that compressor on a kick drum. That's weird. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so good.
0: I love that. Idea. I think I remember, like I've one, like I remember seeing like a, the CLA three, a on a kick drum. It's like, why would, I, why was I using a CLA three a on a kick drum? But like, that's where I was at. You know what I totally, mean? And man. it worked. Yeah. It worked at the time. Exactly. So who cares? <laughs> you <laughs> totally. know what I mean? Yeah. So like, yeah, it, it's good to, I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to try to look back at pictures and maybe open up some old sessions and, and think about what has happened in the interim. And uh, yeah, hopefully that'll guide the future as well. Steve, this has been so fun. What's the best way to find you on the internet? How could people connect with you?
1: Um Yeah, man, you could uh, best, I guess, really is to just shoot me an email. You can get, uh, email me at steveornest at gmail.com. Um, or, um, of course on social media, mostly Instagram, uh, at steveornest or at TA recording or at TA rehearsal now. <laughs> um, and then the same for the websites there, TA recording.com, TA rehearsal.com. And yeah, that's pretty much it. And man, thank you so much for having me on, man. It was such a pleasure. Oh, thank
0: Thank you. This is, this is great for me as well. So yeah, I hope to stay in touch, man. Sounds good. And, no, uh, stay safe out there. You too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Secret Sonics. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Steve as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, I'd super appreciate it if you would go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It really helps the show. And if you could share this episode or your favorite episode with a friend or two, that would also really help the show move forward. In addition to that, you can find us on social media. Just search for Secret Sonics. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. And you can email me at secretsonics at gmail.com if you have any comments, feedback, guests you might want to recommend, anything like that. So that's about it for now. Uh, Until next time, I hope you guys have a great week. Stay safe out there and dig in. Bye-bye.